We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. Listeners, Nate Solon, who's here with me, and I just wrapped a fantastic interview with the CEO of Chess.com, uh, Eric Olibest. Um, so super excited to share that with you. Uh, I brought Nate in because obviously he's got uh, tons of chops as a data scientist and someone who competes in um, Title Tuesday regularly and has written um, incisively about the topic of chess cheating. And that's, of course, one of the major topics that we discussed with Eric, although certainly not the only one. Um, before we bring Eric in, did want to give a shout out to our presenting chess education sponsors, Chessable.com. Obviously, Chessable is owned by Chess.com. So uh, Eric, in a sense, is a sponsor of this podcast. But I think you guys will hear Eric says right at the beginning of the interview, you know, no topic is off limits. And we're sharing the conversation with you basically unedited. So um, I hope and think that you guys will be pleased with the candor of the interview. Um, so Nate has a, one chessable course out, another one on the way. But before we get to the interview, we also want to tell you about a new project that Nate's working on. Welcome, Nate. Hey, thanks for having me, Ben. So Nate, what else have you been cooking up besides your chessable courses and these beautiful posts that you make no money on each week on your Swishings <laughs> of the Clock? I do have a paid level now, but yeah, not a ton of people Sorry, on they that. make $2 uh, on. <laughs> yeah. I just launched an online chess learning community called the Chess Gem with my friend Martin Eustacen from the Say Chess newsletter. 
Yeah, so it's a it's a online community for people to work on their chess. The way we see it is there's so many resources out there now um, that it's it's very overwhelming for a lot of people to know what to focus on. And a lot of those resources are great, but it's just too much for anyone to do. So we really wanted to, to simplify it. So we're um, really focused on building just a, a few core habits, the, um, you know, make it as easy as possible for you to do the most impactful kind of chess training every day for people who, who want to get better. Okay, excellent. Yeah. And I terrible slacker when it comes to chess, but I did check out the chess gym and they're sending me daily positions and it's uh, quite well thought out as everything from Martin and Nate is. So we'll link to that in the show description um, as well as to the latest and greatest from Chessable. But without further ado, I think I think you guys are really going to enjoy this uh, this interview with uh, Eric Olibus. So we will get you straight to it. And Nate and I are honored to be joined by the Chess.com co-founder and CEO. Of course, listeners probably know Chess.com, the largest chess company in history, I am almost certain, with over 700 employees, over $100 million in annual revenue. Uh, our guest's history of co-founding and growing this company, its it's been told. Uh, I'm sure we'll be getting into it a bit, but uh, I think we're going to jump right in and introduce uh, Chess.com CEO, Eric Olibest. Welcome, Eric. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's an honor to be here, and uh, I love talking about chess. I love talking about, you know, any any uh, any topics related to it. So ask me anything. Okay. Yeah. Super excited, and of course we have Nate Solon here as well. Uh, hello, Nate. Hey. Glad to be here. So, Eric, these are the times we live in. I feel like we have to start with chess cheating. I don't. I don't Do make it. the rule. <laughs> I don't make the rules. Uh, yeah. And, and of course, there've been. So we're recording on January thirty first, two thousand twenty four. So if anything crazy happens before this comes out, it probably will. We apologize. But the news of this week, Fabiano's been outspoken. There was recently a profile in the New York Times uh, discussing the chess cheating um, story, in which you were quoted, Eric. And there were a few interesting things in that story. Um, one quote that I highlighted was you said that the chess cheating you view as a medium problem that is a big PR problem. So I'd love to hear you expound on that. Yeah. Um, I say it's a medium problem because I think that for most people who play on chess.com or play online chess, most people will either never or almost never encounter cheating. So there's a lot of people that would disagree with that statement, right? I, I agree with, I understand that there are people who would disagree with that. But most players are playing, most people who are playing online are playing in the sub, you know, thousand rating pool. There's not cheating there. Now, if we, now we go above and you, you know, the higher up you go or maybe, you know, different tiers. Like personally, I play around 1800. I never... I never feel like I encounter cheating. I have had a rating refund like three times in the last two years. And so I think that at my level, like who wants to cheat to be 1800, right? And so it's more of a problem the higher up you go. And the other thing is, is that our view is that cheating is less prevalent than what people fear, people fear. And I'll give you I want to answer that by sharing that we're currently working on a project called expected outcomes or expected results. 
And we're taking a deep dive look across all blitz play to start, roughly three minute, three one, three two, and looking at the expected results of somebody playing a game with different rating variances. If if you assume that the vast majority let, let me ask you, would you assume that the vast majority of OTB in person OTB blitz games are clean? I would, yes. Yeah, I, I would say yeah on that one. Okay, I agree. If you believed that online cheating was more prevalent than OTB, which you would assume because it's easier, I mean, here, let me put my phone here and cheat or whatever, right? Then you would assume that you would have different levels of expected results from players so let's say a 2500 let's say you're let's say that you're 250 rating points below your opponent in online blitz versus 250 rating points below your opponent in otb blitz okay and you take all of those moments that underrated people and over you know and people 250 higher and you compared all of those games if you think people are cheating online, you would expect to have a higher percentage of upsets and wins by lower rated players. That's, that's assuming that the person who would be cheating would be the lower rated player, at least more often, right? Right. So we're going we're gonna to produce a ton of data on this that I think is going to help support the position that we hold, which is that there's a lot less cheating than what people envision. And we're working on a report on that. And we'll put all the data out there, all the research out there and share. And expected results, expected outcomes is one of those things that we're going to share. Okay, so a few follow-ups, Eric. Number one, just out of curiosity, when you describe your own play uh, at the 1800 level and not getting very many rating refunds, like what, uh, what time control is that? Um, I play... I do play a lot of bullet, which is obviously not as much cheating. Um, I play some blitz and a lot less rapid. So okay. that's a fair point. Yeah, because anecdotally, I actually don't. I mean, I haven't been playing as much lately, so that could be part of it. But I don't get that many reading refunds. But certainly you see people online who who discuss getting them um, a fair amount. And as you talked about, uh, we'll be referencing a few times for listeners. There was a really interesting interview that Eric did, uh, with Ilya Levitov on the Levitov's world YouTube channel. Um, and you talked about, you need like a 90% or, I mean, not basically a 90% certainty threshold is, is not enough, but you still are catching a lot of people. Um, so wouldn't that suggest that there are high numbers of people in the pool where like they're probably cheating, but the, the certainty threshold isn't high enough? They're possibly cheating, so possibly slash probably. And the thing is, is that we will catch them, but we will catch them later than, you know, they usually don't stay at that level. It usually you gather more data and then it tips to a conclusion. So what it means is not necessarily more people cheating, but it probably means the same number of people cheating, but cheating in more games than we would like and possibly more because they, you know, hover in that area a little bit, but. Okay. And you could, also oh, mentioned, sorry, ben, Oh, go ahead. Uh, could, could I just, 
before we get too far past, I just wanted to, to follow up on, on one thing from a minute earlier. Um, so Eric, you meant, you know, you feel that like there are really very few people cheating, at least compared to what people perceive and you're working on the expected, well, you know, Ben and me are both poker players. So obviously, you know, expected, expected results, you're speaking my language, but can you say anything else about, um, why you believe, you know, how, you know, so few people are cheating? Cause that seems to be like a hugely challenging part of all this for most types of problems, right? You want, you want like a data set where you know the truth to kind of test Hey, is what we're doing working with cheating? It's really hard to get that because people aren't going to admit to it in almost any case, right? We actually get a ton of confessions. We get a lot. So we get a lot of data about that. Um, We also may or may not have a secret cheater program that we use to audit systems and do things right. Um, So we the data collection is a problem but we do get a lot of confessions um and the other thing i'll say is just that we find so often that people's intuitions around what is cheating or what is not cheating is completely wrong and we find there was a case where you know a couple weeks ago Somebody on LinkedIn freaked out. Oh, you closed my dad's account. My dad wouldn't even know how to cheat. He's tagging like every single person in the company in this post. And I'm, you know, it starts to go viral on LinkedIn. Yeah, you got his account closed and all these people chiming in. Oh, I looked at the games. There's no cheating there. Oh, like, you know, oh, your dad's just a great proving player. And then like, you know, I go and I look at the data with the team and I come back and I post this nice, long validating, sympathetic, but firm post. And then he comes, oh, yeah, I talked to my dad and it turns out, yeah, he was cheating and here's how it goes. So, you know, but what it shows is a whole bunch of people in the comments didn't know what to look at. But then we get the opposite too, where, oh, I know this person was cheating or, oh, this person's the cheater and did this. And then our team will go look and it's very clearly not cheating. And so what I'm saying is, People's gut feel about what is or isn't is really not a reliable tool, according to us, around what is or isn't cheating. Because a lot of times it's based on expected results or what they think should have happened, which I think is the worst way to look at that. Because when you have a thousand people playing in a Title Tuesday event or 700 people, you're going to have very, you, you know, you're going to have outlier performances by definition, guaranteed due to the number of people who are in there. And then the other thing is, is that a lot of times they're just upset that they lost and they don't understand how they got outplayed or other things by someone who's such so lower rated. And it's not, and then when you go look at the moves and you're like, well, why did you like do this incredibly bad move and then just allow this to happen? So what I'm saying is people's feeling about how I'm not saying people are not cheating. I'm not trying to say there's five cheaters on chess.com, but there are people who believe that there's, you know, 30% of games are cheating or 50% of people entitled Tuesday are cheating in one or more games. I think those are absurd claims and the numbers are de minimis in comparison to what people are thinking and claiming. Cheating does happen. It takes a while to catch. It do, It is a problem, but the perception of the problem is so much worse than what we believe the actual reality is. Okay. And now, Eric, uh, you, you referenced or made mentioned this 50% potential estimate entitled Tuesday. Fabiano, in a recent interview, sort of ballparked 
his estimate around there. So it's, I don't know if that's where you got that. But obviously, Fabiano has been quite outspoken recently, in addition to Grandmaster Kramnik, um, in, you know, in different styles and in different methods. And Fabiano uh, also mentioned that he felt like he's probably playing two cheaters per tournament in uh, Titled Tuesday. Uh, I believe it was on the most recent C-Squared podcast. Um, so, A, I'm curious if that ring. I'm guessing that doesn't ring true to you, but I'm also curious what the, the nature... Obviously, Fabiano, great ambassador for the game, collaborated with Chess.com many times. What are the nature of like the conversations with Fabiano like? Yeah. First of all, if he's facing two cheaters per Titled Tuesday out of 11 games... I don't know how he gets to 50% cheating, especially if he's at the high end of the bracket. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. even if you do agree with him and he's at the winning side of the bracket where you would expect more cheating, I do not understand where he would come up with 50% as a number out of that. It just doesn't compute for me. So I'm just going to, that to me is a great example of someone having a feeling that doesn't match quantitatively with like any possible reality. As for Fabiano himself, I had, I had I had dinner with Fabiano not that long ago at the you know the Champion uh, Chess Tour Finals. I have a deep respect for him as a player. Um, we we joke around. We are we have a, a cordial good relationship. But I will say that even people close to him who love him like a brother can't engage with him. Feel like they can't talk with him in a in a rational way about this topic necessarily. And that he has, he, you know, and I think we, I'm not trying to compare him to someone who's conspiratorial in politics, other things, but we all know people who have views that maybe veer farther away from the, the, the norm. And there's, it's just kind of like not really a way to talk through with that, through that with them. It's possible in my view that he is taken into some narratives that are just far from reality. And because it's based on feelings, there's not a lot that we can do to have a conversation there, which is why we're working on more transparency and more data to bring to the discussion to say, hey, when you lose to someone who's rated 400 points lower than you, that is an expected outcome. That is an expected result for this tournament. This is not, you you, you can't take that one moment you had and extrapolate and say, well, that's a that's that's an outlier. Like we are expecting that. So I'm going to try to combat misinformation with information. And so that's, you know, I hope that will help Fabiano and others kind of come to view it more closely to how we view it. Yeah, I think um, I um I think I did a tweet about that of it seems like people these top, you know, top players maybe expect to dominate to an extent against lower rated players that's not really realistic because the elo system does it what the elo system does at core is takes a rating difference and outputs an expected score and the expected score isn't 100 you know for a 200 rating point difference it's about 75 percent for 400 i think it's around 90 percent i that might not be the exact numbers but you know 400 rating point difference the expected value it's it's high, but it's nowhere near a hundred percent. So yeah, I think, and it's and it's different yeah. when you look at classical OTB and you look at blitz OTB, and then you look at just regular three plus one, uh, three plus two, or three O on Chess.com versus Title Tuesday. You know, you can see the different comparative 
expected results and expected outcomes from that. And we're going to share all that data. And I think it's going to be really surprising for some people. Um, so that's one thing that we're doing to try to address that. I also think that like, to your point, Nate, like a lot of people have their views on results and things based on a classical chess mindset of how many draws and how many this and how this should happen. And this level of person should have this outcome. And, you know, I think we are all, you know, even aware possibly that Magnus Carlsen was, you know, subjected to this, his own bias as well. Um, you know, through, through, you know, what happened in, in the Singfield cup. And so I think I'm hopeful that more information and more statistics and more transparency will help people get a better picture because feelings are a bad, especially around statistics, feelings are a bad uh, source of truth. Yeah, there's a lot of behavioral economics around how bad people are at estimating probabilities. So I'm definitely uh, sympathetic to you guys in that regard. Um, and Eric, we, uh, we took to Twitter to sort of get the pulse of the community, get some some questions. Um, and we left it open-ended, but surprise, surprise, most of the questions are related to fair play. So um, I'd like to uh, sprinkle a few in, if you don't mind. Uh, sure. uh, this one is from Yosha Iglesias, who wondered if uh, you could ask if you guys have considered um, non-punitive measures regarding suspects, such as sort of like a chess-like a chess Turing test, where... You know, I know, you know, Nate's written about like what happens if if the software flags you or if you're randomly flagged um, yeah. and and suddenly have an extra camera on you or whatever it may be, an extra Zoom call. But uh, Yosha's asking, like, what about just on the spot tests, that sort of thing? Yeah. So. We are working on a, a host of new protocols and procedures to try to protect the game from a preventative way so again current you know a lot of cheat detection is around after the game looking at stats and all the different algorithmic pieces to it we're pushing hard on the preventative side and so we are currently working on a um, software uh, system that will allow us to much more easily scale up how many people are being proctored and to see their faces, to see their rooms, to capture their screen, to know what processes are running on their computer. Um, so that kind of real-time proctoring software is a big thing that we're going to be doing. Um, in addition to that, uh, you know, we're kind of, this is a little bit crass, but we're calling it a pee in the cup moment to your, you know, to what you said, <laughs> where it kind of in the moment, you know, the doctor hands you the cup and then says, and I'm going to come into the bathroom and watch you pee in the cup. Um, we, we, you know, we may start being a little bit more aggressive around saying, hey, your expected performance based on your rating was around here. You have consistently done that. Um, you know, we are going to have you now play under supervised play so we can watch and how you do. That's something we might do. We might still do that to all sorts of people. We might do that to, you know, anybody as a, as a request because these are money events and so we, we might do some randomly, we might do some suspiciously, we might do some strictly for someone who we think is not cheating, but who is maybe getting a lot of community heat around their performances to kind of help prove and show like this is, we you know, that we don't think they're cheating, 
And we want to help support that narrative. And, you know, and so there's all sorts of reasons why we might, we might, we might do that, but we're going to start turning up the heat a little bit on how much we're monitoring uh, people's environments as they play. Um, So it doesn't totally address the question, but in our view, kind of like pulling someone onto camera after and then like showing them a chess position and saying, what do you think about this chess position is probably in our view, not, and not the most effective way to kind of like gauge their understanding. Sorry, Sorry, if, um, if I could just ask, like, so, so as far as the proctoring you were talking about, how would that be different from what you're already doing? Is it just, you're just doing it on a larger scale, more like a higher percentage of people for any given event? Well, right now we kind of cobbled together our own proctoring system, which is effective. You know, we do a camera for some things. It's just one camera for some it's two cameras, um, but we don't have screen capture. We don't have, you know, the, the stuff, the software running on your computer. This would be basically an executable file that sits on your computer called, you know, chess.com events. And when you click it, it opens an app, which runs a browser inside of it, but gives us more access to what's going similar to almost every other video game that's out there that when you're playing you know PUBG or counter-strike there's the game and then there's like a hypervisor or whatever it is that kind of sits outside the game and monitors all the different stuff so it's our first foray into this and we think it should give us much better visibility and it's actually way less clunky you're not on a zoom call with you know you know, 50 other people and hearing people chewing and eating and stuff. So it's going to be, it's going to be a lot better. And how do you, if I could just ask one more question on that one, how do you sort of balance the anti-cheat side of it with the event experience side? Just, just speaking as someone who plays Entitled Tuesday with no chance of winning, you know, I think even, even on my best day when I really performed very well for my standards, I was not that close to, um, winning any money or anything like that. So I feel like Titled Tuesday has this this interesting dual identity as a professional event with um you know money real money on the line, but also for a lot of people sort of a casual event, you know, for the sort of random guys like me who don't have much of a chance. You know, I would say like if you want to participate in an event that has Magnus Carlson and Hikaru Nakamura and Fabiano Caruana and Ali Reza Faruja and Wesley So and names, you know, all the names, you want to play in an event where you might get paired with that person who is fighting for the prize and for the thing, then you know. The price of admission. You're gonna you're yeah, gonna you're participating in a major event. And you're gonna then click on and once you do it once, it's not scary. Like you install, you download the software. And now when you want to play Title Tuesday, you log in on that browser rather than on the other browser. And that's it. It's not going to, but I understand not everyone wants to get monitored, but at the same time, like Nate, not, not an offense to you, but you know, Fabiano thinks, you know, okay, I get cheated against two times in Title Tuesday. It's not that he thinks that Hikaru is cheating against him or Magnus, or he thinks that Fide Masters and IMs are maybe cheating to get a scalp or something like that. So, you know, Everybody who's going to play in that event needs to participate in the proctoring so that it's a fair system all around. Even if you don't want to win money, you know, it's it's the fairest thing all around. And I think that it sounds like a bummer, but once you do it, it's it's just a thing you do and it's not a big deal. 
Okay. Speaking of uh, checking in on people, Eric, I got to ask another follow-up from this New York Times story. I feel like you may have to punt on this question, but I got to ask. So it said that you once showed up at a GM's house who was suspected yeah. of cheating. Yeah. <laughs> Anything else you can reveal about this story? <laughs> we were there to uh, film content, uh, you know. Uh, no, I mean, look, it was early days and it was someone we were a little nervous about. and. We were trying to prevent, you know, some something from happening and we went and sat there and the event ended as expected and no big deal. I mean, it was no, fine. No smoking gun. No smoking gun. Nothing, okay. nothing weird there. Okay. Um, on to another Twitter question. This one's from uh, Vox Populi who wondered, uh, to ensure integrity for major online attorneys, why not require players to play from an in-person proctor centralized location like a gamer cafe? You could have it in major city centers. Uh, have you guys considered that? I mean, a little bit to Nate's point, that's like one step even further and harder to like get people, hey, if you want to play Entitled Tuesday, you know, you now need to, ca you know, go to a public cafe. But even if you're in a public cafe, like who's watching you? Like, you know, they don't know. They don't know. It, it, it's better for us to send people to your home and where you play, you know, maybe you play on a PC and it's all set up with your gamer chair and then what you're now you're playing on a laptop at a you know coffee shop so it's not it's not the answer to the question um so i understand but it's a lot easier to kind of go the other way yeah that makes sense we'll be back with more from chess.com ceo eric olibest it is ryan here and i have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And we are back. So are you considering, like, for a title Tuesday, obviously there's some prestige associated. It's decent money, especially for sitting at home on a Tuesday, um, but not life-altering by any means. For an event like that, would you consider, like, sending an employee to someone's house, or would it need to for be sure. sort of higher stakes? No, for sure we will. Here's the weird thing about title Tuesday. Title Tuesday is the event that we never thought would matter that much, and it's turned out to be what everybody talks about. Meanwhile, Pro Chess League is what we wanted everybody to care about and had a very small following comparatively. It's just interesting that like fans and players speak and say, hey, this is what matters to me. And it, it was just very a little bit surprising that that Title Tuesday became the thing that so many people care about. And I think it speaks to the format. It speaks to the regularity. It speaks to the excitement of the quick play and the, and the thing. And so we're building on that event. The titled cup is the new thing where you get your best points from throughout the year onto a leaderboard. 
Um, now there's more prizes. And what I love is that there's prizes for seniors, there's prizes for women, there's prizes for juniors, there's prizes for girls. And so we're trying to just, you know, we're trying to build up and say, hey, this is something that that matters. Um, and you know, we're also gonna be working with different fantasy partners. So you can log in and say, Oh, today I wanna, you know, I wanna do my picks and my draft for who's gonna be on my title Tuesday fantasy team today. Um, you know, we're trying to build around this event. It's what fans have said. Hey, this is really fun. We like it. Players like it. Again, it's not life altering money, but it's really added a lot to the chess world. And so it's definitely an area that we're investing in to really protect. And Magnus himself, and I believe Danny Wrench as well, said that obviously cheating, they, they termed it as an existential threat sure. to chess. And I, I mean, I think they were referring to at least in Magnus's case, to OTB chess, let alone online. So how do you sort of square that tension where it's that big a threat? And, you know, uh, the saying goes that the, you know, the the criminals are always always ahead of the cops in terms of like innovating. So how do you square that with all of these uh, business plans that sound amazing, obviously, but um, but require um, fairness? Yeah, again, I think. I'll say I think that the actual problem is smaller than the PR problem about it. So we are, but we are working hard at it in so many different ways with different capabilities and proctoring. So we are leveling up our capabilities for proctoring. We're leveling up our capabilities for catching. Um, and so it's not like we're saying, oh, it's not a problem. We're not doing anything. We're doing everything we can. And yet we still think, you know, there are some people who are maybe horribleizing the problem farther than it is. I mean, look at who's actually winning title Tuesdays. Look at who's actually on the leaderboard. Look at the actual outcomes. They're not that weird. Like, it's not weird. I, I agree with that. I'll say it's, it's mostly yeah, it's, the top players. It's usually players. The, top, the top players up yeah. there. Um, Except for even, I mean, you, just kidding. Just even, kidding. You, I, that, that was an inside joke. <laughs> <laughs> Even Fabiano, I mean, I know he's had some losses he's upset about, but, you know, I've seen him up there a lot. It seems like he's yeah. won a lot of games. Yeah. The only and, bummer is that Kramnik has totally stopped playing Title Tuesday. So, yeah. just maybe kidding. He'll be... <laughs> he plays all the time. <laughs> I was going to say, I, maybe I, he'll be back because I, I lost track. Um, I, I, I lost to him once. He, he yeah, it was pretty one-sided. So, <laughs> I escaped his attention, I guess. <laughs> um, and... Eric, we also have a question from Card Captor Sakura. He actually asked a few questions about estimating percentages of cheaters, but also was curious, um, and this comes up a lot I've seen in sort of online discourse, your policy around naming cheaters. Like, um, obviously, you guys have put a lot of thought into that. Is that pretty set in stone at this point? Any thoughts of uh, uh, tilting the scale in either direction? So in terms of percentage of cheating, I will say that I'm in the room where it happens for all of the fair play monitoring that goes on for Title Tuesday. I will say that after every event, al after almost every event, there's a title player who's closed from what I can view. And, you know, I have some numbers around how many have been closed, et cetera, but, you know, it's 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 a lot over time and yet it's also not you know it's not 50 percent of people who are playing in title tuesdays right that's um, one out of 800 or something you know if yeah it's a title yep so as for naming 
this is this is a this is a tough topic. I mean, I will first say that we have like every legal right to do whatever we want. It's in our terms and conditions. Every time somebody goes and plays in an event, they agree to the terms and conditions. That includes that we can, you know, name them and do whatever we want to do. So we have within our legal powers the ability to decide what it should be. It's then a question of like what's best for the game and different sports and games handle things differently. Our view has been that depending on the event and depending on what's going on, we will or will not kind of share what happened. I mean, if somebody cheated in the Champions Chess Tour, you better believe, and they were you know, in the finals thing, you better believe we're going to talk about everything that happened, as we did in the, you know, the PCL before. Um, if it's a, you know, if it's like a 16-year-old kid who's a FIDE master who cheats in a Title Tuesday, like, and we send them a message and, you know, more than 30% of people who, who get called out will confess and they'll come back after some time. And then the number of people who are like three, you know, second time offenders is like minuscule. People do it. They get caught. They learn their lesson. They serve some time. They come back and they've learned. And it's like, go for it is okay. And so we, I don't know, maybe it's because Danny and I are parents and we've got kids and we watch our kids make mistakes all the time. Maybe because we have a deep, you know, faith in the goodness of humanity or whatever, but we've kind of leaned toward you know, giving people a second chance to do the thing that they love. And I understand that some people may say, hey, well, then that encourages or allows it. I don't think that's true. I think it's pretty painful for people to be super active on chess.com and then suddenly not active and not playing in Title Tuesdays and not doing those things. I think it's pretty painful and a pretty big, uh, you know, um, deterrent. But I understand the arguments and that people could say that the opposite is true. And I can understand that viewpoint. Yeah, and of course, you guys have legal liability to worry about as well. Is, I'm less. I'm actually a, not worried about that. Again, everyone has clicked enough buttons and said enough that they will agree to the policies and everything. Now, that doesn't stop people from suing you, but we have a very strong track record of just handling that. We get get sued a lot. We get threatened oh, a you? lot. Sure. I know you got threatened a lot, but I wasn't aware of a lot of lawsuits other than obviously Hans Not Eden. a lot get filed in, not a lot make it. So we get a lot of like legal demand letters. I demand right. on behalf of my client this and that. And then we send back our response and then we usually get crickets. And occasionally it'll go further. And we just have a great track record of handling that. So I, that's not a fear for us of like, oh, we don't want to say this because we don't want legal problems. I'll, I'll take the legal problems. That's not, that's not the problem. Nate, did you have a question? Oh, yeah. I was just so, um, just to follow up a, a little bit on that, it sounded like sort of a standard procedure, you know, if you think someone was cheating, is you message them, you say, We think you were cheating, but they have the option if they admit it, it sounds like they sort of serve some sort of suspension and then they maybe, you know, they come back. Is that, I mean, is that sort of standard operating procedure? And is there a policy around like, how long that suspension would be or anything like that? It kind of depends on the severity of the cheating. It depends on, you know, the event or not event that it was in. 
Um, it depends on a lot of different factors, you know, and so it's a little bit like in other sports and games, it's kind of up to a, you know, a, a an arbitrating group inside the, the, our fair play team to kind of decide what that would look like. Um, so, but they they do need to, you know, people who, who, you know, we, we believe cheat and we let them know that if they never, you know, if they never fess up to it, then they don't come back. What's, what's the reason for, um, for that, I mean, wouldn't that, I mean, that would also be the behavior of someone who had not cheated, right? Yeah. Um, I don't, yeah, I don't know if the, the question makes it, I'm sort of just trying to wrap it, my head around what, why, why is coming back? Yeah. We've had this debate also, back? which is like, hey, mm-hmm. we'll just close their account for a certain amount of time and whether they admit it or not, then they can come back in X amount of period of time regardless. But you know, we're, we're, we're not really operating in the, like, ah, uh, we kind of think like there's a decent chance they're cheating. So let's just send them this letter and hope that they admit to it. That's not what we're doing, you know? So when we send that letter, that email, we are, we're acting, we're confident, we're ready to battle it out. We're ready to stand by our findings. We're ready to go to court. And so we're confident on it. And so that's that's the stance we're taking at this time. And let me ask you, Eric, um, around the Hans Niemann kerfuffle, whatever you whatever you want to call it. I like kerfuffle. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, one of the sort of angles that came out was that there needs to be more transparency and communication between the OTB realm and the online realm. Like maybe this could have been avoided if there had been more information available. Um you know, and you mentioned when you were talking with uh, Ilya Levitov, you had a call with FIDE. I'm curious if you've had conversations w- with them about sort of squaring the circle, even if it's not externally known, about people who've been shut down online with people who are competing IRL. FIDE. Oh, wow. How deep do I want to go on this topic? Deep, Um, deep. (laughs) FIDE doesn't have their own fair play capabilities, to my knowledge. They use Ken Regan, you know, who is a professor and part-time, you know, fair play detective. Um, We have a great relationship with Ken, utmost respect. We have different methodologies. And we know that because he's very upfront with his methodologies, but we're not about ours. Um, mm-hmm. And I understand that's asymmetrical, but it is what it is. We also get more data on online play that he doesn't have access to, et cetera. So there's there's different things. There. We have a great relationship with Ken on that, but FIDE doesn't have their own capabilities. And I will say that our efforts to work with FIDE on this topic have not been great, including sharing overwhelming statistical evidence and having someone say, I reject this evidence. It doesn't feel right. I know this person would never cheat to having maybe people inside of FIDE who themselves have been, you know, probably likely cheating at some point in some event or something. And so it's, and that's not to, that's not to say that, you know, I, I think, 
I think we're just kind of operating a little bit too differently here and that they want us to maybe give them reports, but then they get to decide what to do with it and disagree with our reports. But like, they don't have the capabilities to even do that because they, anyway, I I will just say we are kind of at an impasse here where like we're coming at things with a ton of data with a, with, you know, millions of dollars of research with 30 people on a fair play team who are looking at statistics and data and algorithms and capabilities. And then we're dealing with something on the other side that doesn't, there's no, uh, there's no socket to plug into that works well there. Um, so, and I would, you know, so I think that that's about all I can say on that. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, it kind of feeds into another question. Um, I recently interviewed Grandmaster Patrick Wolf. It was amidst Shoegate with uh, Anamaya Kazarian and, uh, you know, the Dubov, Nepo, Horsey Gate or whatever you, <laughs> whatever you want to call that one. We've got a lot with, of gates going on. Yeah, with, with uh, the repetition. And he was uh, positing, and he's certainly not alone in this opinion, that uh, chess needs a new governing body and suggested that if Magnus and chess.com got on board. He felt given the explosive growth of chess over recent years, it's more viable than ever. Um, given what you just just described and sort of reaching an impasse on some issues, like is, is that something that chess.com would consider being involved in? You know, we get this, we get this comment a lot. Um, I think the general sentiment that if you you know if you went around on the on the Twitter sphere and and uh, you know took the temperature around on online the general sentiment about FIDE is you know a little challenging for them I would say from a PR point of view um, you know governing the OTB world I don't envy them and the challenge that it is they're working with many federations across lots of different things with a budget that is challenging and with very limited technical capabilities whatsoever in a very technical, you know, world. And so they have a hard job there. And, you know, I think FIDE has a, (laughs) FIDE has a track record, whatever you think that is of trying to promote the game and, and do the, do the best they can. Um, you know, I, we, I've had regular meetings with, you know, Arkady and Emil and, you know, I, I believe in their hearts that they want what's best for chess. Um, and so I I will just say chess.com doesn't have an interest in, you know, being a new FIDE or anything like that. That's just, it's so far outside of what we're trying to do or the way that we're trying to do things and governing the, the vastness of OTB is really hard to do. Um, so that's not something that's really contemplated for us. I will say that we've tried to work with FIDE to evolve the game, uh, from an events point of view and from, you know, a commercial viability. And, you know, I said this on a recent podcast as well, so I might as well say it here that like we made a bid for, uh, the world chess championship to try to you know, get the commercial rights to that, to, to take it into the, you know, uh, 21st century, um, maybe 25 years too late, but still try to take it there. Um, and that was a rejected. And so, you know, we're going to, you know, I think FIDE is going to FIDE and chess.com is going to chess.com. And frankly, I think a lot of people also like 
have a little bit of a love-hate relationship with chess.com where they're like, wow, this is great in all these ways, but they're already too powerful. And if we like went to try to do that, it'd be like, you know, I don't know. People are very suspicious at times of our motives. And, you know, when Danny and I look at ourselves in the mirror, we're like, I don't know why some people think we're the bad guys here, but, you know, we're just a couple of, uh, you know, we're just a team of people who really love chess and are trying to do what's best. But I think if we tried to take a bite of that Fide Apple in that way that that was suggested by the user, you know, I'm not sure that would be well received. And I'm not sure that that's, you know, it's not a great plan for us. Was the was the offer for the world championship rejected on financial terms or on like terms of principle? Do you know or? And, th- and that was an yeah, offer I mean, to, more... to Fide. What's that? Like, sorry, was, that so that was an offer like to Fide as 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 like a sponsor or? Yeah, we mm-hmm. we offered to basically say we will be the commercial partner uh, for the World Chess Championship for the next ten years. We will promote it. We will. We will run it. We will handle the cycle. We will put it on TV. We will find sponsors. We will do the prizes. We will we will do this. And I think that it was rejected for three reasons. One, um, and we could have talked through a lot of these, but some of them were non-negotiable. But one is like, sure, the finance. You know, we could have always talked about finances and how to split that, but we never actually really got there. Our view was that we don't want to create an event that. We don't want to. We don't want to operate an event that the you know that the top players and especially Magnus Carlsen doesn't even want to play in. If the okay. if the five time world champion doesn't want to play in that event, then we're probably you know it, it's not the event that's going to get you know get us excited to put on TV and really go forward. So and then you the would other, have been sorry. Go ahead. It's just the formatting. We couldn't align on formatting. We wanted it to be yearly. We wanted it to be faster. We wanted okay. it to be you know. Something like more akin to what we're seeing in most other sports and games that have things, you know, you can't, you can't have a game that takes nine hours long and that goes for 21 days straight and think that there's a TV network or a media partner who's going to put that on TV. Like it doesn't, it just won't work in today's world. And then if you can't make it meet, if you can't make it commercial or media acceptable, you can't make it commercially viable. You can't, you can't do it. And so we we had a, we came to an impasse around what the event would look like and formatting. And then thirdly, they didn't want to be kind of in the back seat to let us drive on it. They want to be they want to be holding the steering wheel. And I don't blame them. Like, great, that makes sense for you. Um. So, well, thanks for your candor. That's hope, really really interesting. Yeah, I think this is actually a little, fairly a little bit of a, a scoop, I guess, or an exclusive that I probably told <laughs> no, that all. I was going to say I, I here, didn't but, know that. I, I was wondering if I had missed the boat, but yeah, I, I didn't know that either. You guys scooped it. You got it. Um, all right. So, yeah, clip it and ship it. We'll be back with more from Chess.com CEO Eric Olibest. And we are back. Let me ask you, Eric. I mean, that feeds into the discussion of the the Magnus um, Hakaru match that unfortunately fell through. Oh. Obviously, Danny talked about this on stateofchess.com in some detail. Um, one thing I was curious about you may you may have just alluded to it, and, and for listeners who who aren't familiar with the whole backstory, basically late last year, you guys were pretty close to the finish line on a major event in Las Vegas, a major match between Magnus and Hikaru, but unfortunately had to to pull the plug. Um, one thing I was curious about is I didn't hear anything about what the actual chess format was going to be. Um, are you able to reveal that? 
I don't think I, I, I don't <laughs> think I'm going to do that at this time. I, I, I like the question. Um, but which may be something we want to keep in the pocket Proprietary. for, you know, gotcha. well, that's good. Time. We want, we, right, you know, well, at least, you know, some traditionalists maybe don't, but I, I want to see a match like that. So if it was um, going to be chess boxing, blink twice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that, well, there was going to be chess boxing there, but it wasn't going to be Magnus and, and Hikaru uh, boxing each other. Yeah, that uh, that actually was another one of my questions because in Danny's explanation, he was weaving in the chess boxing event that Ludwig put on, and I didn't completely understand the connection. The connect the, the chess boxing was meant to be a fan event that happened kind of in the middle of the event, so you could watch the event and then participate in a fan day and a chess boxing kind of expose thing with streamers and merch and kind of a chess con kind of convention day with chess boxing in the evening, kind of in the middle of this event. And so it would kind of bring together people who were, you know, very interested in the the chess component with people who are more interested in maybe more of the creator and community environments and trying to put it all together in one event. And the event fell through because when you we, we, we laid out what this was going to look like from an event point of view, from a partnership point of view, from a sponsorship point of view, from a venue point of view, and then the further along we got, just everything started to change just enough to where the final algorithm of the whole thing was just not viable anymore. And when the venue at the end just like went bonkers, it just it was just like the straw that broke the camel's back that now everything, you know, it, it just was too many things changed from what it was supposed to originally be. And with the venue falling through at the last minute, it meant that the, that, you know, more money was going to be lost right. and all the things were just falling apart. And so it was a super bummer. And, uh, I, I, frankly, it makes me extremely sad that that happened. Yeah. It would have been fun. And dare I ask if, if there's anything, if you're, planning anything similar, anything else in the works at this point? I mean, we're always floating ideas of how we can do more live finals and get more fans in seats and do real-time things. I mean, you know, for the CCT finals in Toronto, just showing up at that sports bar where the chess bras were doing their thing and there were people playing and it was such a cool vibe to feel people in person coming together to watch something happen. And even though the fans weren't there, you know, around the board watching it unfold, it was that kind of energy of it happening was really neat. So we'd love to do that at the same time. And this is being real. It's like, you can't make this stuff happen when your entire viewership is YouTube and Twitch. Like we, we have lost so much money on events. I mean, just putting it out there last year, we spent nearly $10 million of money that went out the door directly into the hands of players, creators, community, coaches, you know, chessable authors, all that stuff. We are putting $10 million out the door into the community. I'm not talking to our employees. I'm talking to people outside of our company in the chess community, whether, again, players and creators. And prizes is a big amount of that. And when you keep doing events and you're spending and you're, you're investing, but you're not necessarily getting closer to your goals of growing and maybe being on TV or trying to make it commercially viable and you're burning money on these events, you're doing it for the community. We're doing it because we're fans. 
But chess, the commercial viability of chess is still like out of reach. And it's super frustrating because we love the game. The stories are there. The players are fascinating. The drama is there. And it's just so hard to have it out, out of reach. What? Why do you think that that is so hard? Because, I mean, I have no idea what, what goes on to what goes into getting on TV. But I do. But I have noticed that every commercial I see, there's a chessboard. Even if the commercial has nothing to do with chess, so you know, so I see all these brands who seem desperate to be associated with chess, and yet it seems like it's still really hard to, you know, get sponsors for some of these big events or things like that. So we have some great sponsors who've come in to to sponsor our events. I mean, you can watch all of our shows and see all of our sponsors and our readouts, and I'm super grateful to those who believe in chess and do that. Uh, we got sponsor for the Collegiate Chess League. We got sponsors for the Champions Chess Tour. We've got sponsors for the, you know, Speed Chess Championship. <laughs> no sponsors for PCL. It's been, you know, very painful. Um, but we 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 are getting more and more. But it's for people who can kind of see that depth and to see where it's going potentially. But, you know, the audience size isn't quite there yet to get the big dollars to then do the thing. And then you need the cycle and you need to then have enough money to produce the event and play the, pay the prizes. And at our level, you don't, you, you have to pay to get your way on TV. You know, you have to buy the time to slot yourself in there. So now there's extra cost in there. And so it's been hard, but we think we are, you know, all the fingers and toes crossed that we're getting very close to that. We took an investment from Endeavor um, which is a very large media company. Um, and we're hopeful that they can, that they have worked with us to, to try and get us closer to that. And we're, we're making plans all the time. Um, you know, we spend a lot of our time trying to grow the game from a production sport game, you know, thing point of view. And we haven't seen the success yet, but we hope that this year we get closer. Um, I think we've talked about this enough publicly. I can say it. There's a, there's going to be a major Netflix um, show this year, later this year about the cheating scandal. And, you know, that might lead to more people saying, wow, chess is super fascinating. Let's do a full drive to survive on chess where we're talking to top players every week and figuring all this out and just like getting the inside scoop. And then there's the major events and all the things. So we spend a lot of time thinking about this. We have super high hopes to grow the game and continue to do that. And yet all the different seeds we've planted, like nothing sprouting out quite yet. I wouldn't be too hard on yourself. <laughs> you guys have uh, spearheaded exponential growth over the past few years. So, but, so I mean, that, that's from... going to be a documentary on the, uh, the cheating stuff. That should be okay. fun. Yeah. Looking forward I think, to that. I'm just going to tell you, I'm terrified. Because they did a really good job getting Danny and me talking. Um, so I think a lot of things are going to be said in there that are going to be possibly a little surprising for the chess world to find out. Now, is this centered on the Neiman story or is it broader? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Hans is, will be in it and interviewed. Magnus will be in it and interviewed. Many other people are being contacted to hopefully be in it, whether that's, you know, Hikaru or, you know, um, you know, a lot, a lot of uh, Sam Sevian, I hope, agrees to do it, given his very interesting story that got swept under the rug. Um, oh, that's a tease. Can you reveal anything else about that? 
You 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 don't know? The, I don't think so. No, he, you, you, he's he's a he's a Boston guy, but I don't know this either. You didn't see the clip? Oh yeah, no, I I remember that when um with Hans, right? He did something weird at the U.S. Was it the U.S. Championship? Was it, it was a big U.S. You, event. You go dive down that rabbit hole, but I would just say that's one of the most interesting stories that hasn't been told. So okay, interesting. And overall, I mean, again, Danny has talked about this uh, fairly extensively, but um, obviously, you were thrown massive curveball, needed to react very quickly. The whole Hans Neiman thing as it went down in St. Louis. But yeah, what were the sort of the the big picture lessons derived from that whole experience? Oh my gosh, that is a lot. Hang on, my bat, my uh, laptop battery's running. Let me just plug in one second. <laughs> I thought you were joking. <laughs> Look oh, at no, that, Ben. Go. He's dodging the question. Like, oh, sorry, guys. Interview's it's the over. Old, it's the old laptop battery. Right. <laughs> um, well, let me say this. I had a total blast, um, and I say that kind of facetiously, uh, writing the Hans Niemann report. It was basically, I did a lot of the words, and our incredible research team, which is currently doing more research on expected results and outcomes, you know, just taking a super deep dive into a lot of places we hadn't looked before, trying to understand and get our hands around what was going on. And the guiding principle for us was just like, try to find the answers to the truth. And that's basically all that we tried to do. And we ended up publishing, of course, what we found, which was what we found, which is in the report. And that's, that's, you know, what it is. Um, It was a really interesting process to go through as a writer, as a researcher, um, to work in kind of an under pressure thing, to be talking to, you know, different people and, and to have it all being reviewed by a lawyer, uh, at the same time, just to, you know, make sure our wording was right and all the different things. So I learned a lot through that process. Um, and it's been, it's been a real wild ride and I'm going to save a lot of that, um, for the documentary that's going to come out. But look, I mean, in many ways, that whole thing put the, put the chess world on the map again for the biggest chess boom that we've ever had. It was the kickoff start of that. And, you know, it's, it, frankly, that whole thing was massive and the chess community grew hugely from it in a, in a totally serendipitous and non-planned way. I mean, that's, you know, no one could have predicted that that would have happened. And frankly, sometimes I'm like, sometimes I'm, I'm like, why did Hans have to go on camera and like come out and have this whole, you know, we had these private emails and then he kind of went on camera and did the whole thing and that kicked off the whole thing. And if he'd just done it privately with us, like none of this would have ever happened. And then I'm like, actually, I'm really glad he did. I mean, like, <laughs> You know, it created a great story and all this interesting stuff. And, you know, it's been a very interesting ride since then. Um, okay. Another topic, Eric, because I, I, you know, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, I got plenty of time and I love talking about chess. So you, you, wow. you don't careful. need to hold back here. Okay. Well, a lot of chess fans were disappointed with the uh, shutdown of uh, Chess 24 and you've, yeah. you've referenced the Pro Chess League a couple times. Um, why don't we start with the Pro Chess League? Because my perspective as a fan slash reporter, you know, whatever, was it seemed like maybe it was a last minute decision. Is that is that fair to say? Total last minute decision. Total. So so what happened? 
we looked at our whole budget for the year on what we can spend and what we can do with events and where we wanted to invest and to continue to invest to invest in something that you have a lot of hopes and dreams in but it's just year after year the numbers are telling you that this is not resonating this is not resonating that's to continue to do that over and over again is you know is crazy and not effective, not a good use of resources. Now, our hope, frankly, my hope, and again, no promises here. No one hold me to this. Our hope is that the PCL comes back more as a community event oh, where good. our team can organize and we'll be supportive and it can be there. But to invest what we were putting in from a team, from a finance, from a from a from a production point of view, was just not meriting the the attention that it was getting. So it it was last minute. I'm super sorry about it. And it's a bummer. And sometimes, you know, when you're, when you're running a business and we are running a business, you make hard decisions because you only have a finite amount of resources. And that's a really hard call to make. I mean, I still wear my San Jose hacker shirt. I'm a huge mm-hmm. fan of the PCL, but like not everybody is. And it didn't, it didn't make it. Yeah. Obviously I'm not like the median chess fan, but but what you said was also my perspective. And I'm old friends with Greg Shahadi, so might carry some biases in that regard too. But like when it was community and it felt like it had local ties, to me, there was a real pull. And then it just became kind of like, to me, a kind of random uh, smattering of grandmasters on each team. And I wasn't as compelled. We, we tried a lot of different things, whether it was rating caps, we tried cities, then we tried this, then we tried that. We tried a lot of different things to say, hey, can we get team chess to matter? And people just said, I love the players. I don't care about the team. Yeah. And so now we're going to try something new. We're currently working on something. I'm not going to spill what it is, but we have a new thing. We're going to just try it and see what happens. And we're going to continue to try a lot of different events and see what resonates. And we're going to evolve it at the same time. We're going to double down on things that are working like Title Tuesday. And then we're going to unfortunately shut down the things that aren't working so we can put those resources to where it is. And that's really, you know, that's the story of all organizations that, you know, and businesses. And that's what happened with Chess 24. You know, Chess 24 was one of 13 companies inside of Play Magnus Group. 13 companies. And... We suddenly, you know, we were basically kind of one and a half companies, chess.com and chess kid and a couple, you know, and Dr. Wolf as an app and different things. But we now brought in all these different things. And what people don't understand is two things. Number one, yes, people lost their jobs, most of it before the acquisition, because they were burning so much money. They were constantly in fundraising mode. They were not commercially viable. They were a stock in a company being propped up by investor dollars only with, frankly, no way to reach sustainability. And so that's one thing is that probably, I mean, I'm sorry to say, like that plane was crashing into the side of the mountain. The mountain was coming fast. And you know, probably in hindsight, like would have been a better business decision for chess.com to just let that plane crash and, you know, pick up pieces afterward, maybe would have cost less money and different things, but it would have taken longer and all the different stuff. And it was a distraction for everybody. And we were having events, but the best player in the world wasn't there. And there was conflict and different things. It just didn't feel good. 
So everyone on their team and our team agreed that, you know, we would merge in together. And, you know, so what also people don't understand is that the majority of people there are now working at chess.com. And they now have jobs doing very similar things to what they were doing. And they're now working happily with all the events and all the different apps and all the different things that we're doing. We brought so many people on board from that. We couldn't bring everyone because, again, they were very net negative on their you know, financial burn. Um, but we've kept so many of those people and we're, we're now building things together. So, But there are so many things inside of there, like their technology on Chess24. I mean, this is not to be negative toward what they built, but like it was there was no technology pieces there that were valuable, let alone sustainable. Like the, 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 what had to be done to upkeep the servers and the different services was so time consuming and inefficient that it was just draining resources. And so these are the hard things you have to do when you're in a business and you have to, you, you have to invest where it makes sense and you have to stop doing the things that don't make sense. And that's, that's the reality. And that's the hard job that I have. And, you know, people can criticize me for that. And I, I accept it. You know, I accept that it's very hard, especially on the outside when you don't have all the information, everything that I get to see, all you see as an outside chess fan is like, Oh, what a, like they just bought this out and killed it. It was so great. They can, they killed it for no reason. Well, I mean, there are reasons. So anyway, but I understand there's feelings, there's emotion. People care when people are mad at me or at chess.com online, I just interpret that as this person cares so deeply about chess and I did something that they didn't understand or they didn't like. And I respect that. Is there anything you can take from them on the event broadcast side? Cause I feel like, you know, if there's one thing they were, they were known for, it's probably that piece of it, like broad, broadcasting live events over the board events. Yeah. So they're kind of backend technology there's like the backend technology and then there's like the front end website. Both of those very problematic to maintain. And the technology was not great. We did learn some things and brought that the learnings of that into our code to kind of be able to do things. And then some of the features the, events is a very hard. I'm going to get in the weeds here for a second. Events are very hard. Every day, I don't know. Let's just say roughly 10 million people come to chess.com to play chess. And like 50,000 people come to watch chess. I mean, that is a very big number to a very small number. And the people who come to watch, are in some ways, there's some power users. They're very, you know, they're, they're, they're deep into it. And so sometimes they want features. And, and when you're building a service for power users, a lot of people were like, hey, I'm, I like to watch events. I want my screen like this with a tiny broadcast here. I want to see all games here. I want to see the standings here. I want to see the engine eval for every single one of them here. I want to see this here. I want to see the player values there. I want to see the rating change here. And they want everything in one screen. Almost like you're a stock trader with like massive stuff on it. And yet here we're here trying to say we need to grow the game and we, need, we want more people to enjoy watching events. Are they going to come into a dashboard of data that looks confusing and weird and they don't understand what's going on and be like, yeah, I'm super into this? Probably not. 
And so we're in this balance of trying to make features that are appeasing the hardcore audience while also trying to grow that audience. That's very hard to do. And we end up disappointing everybody because it's too confusing for some people and it's not as you know compact as other people would like. And so, I don't know, it, 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 you pushed on a soft spot for me. I, I feel bad, um, but we are trying to improve that product and we've learned a lot. And many of the people on the Chess24 team are actively working with us to improve that product. Yeah, I wasn't personally surprised by by the wind down of uh, Chess Twenty Four. You know, I also you know their, as you alluded to, their financials were were public records. So, um, you it, what you said doesn't surprise me about um, the the losses they were generating. But I will say uh, one final thing on this, Eric, was the the most common disappointment I saw online when it was announced was. Um, was the app for actually watching events um any chance of like um incorporating some of the ui from that into uh watching live events absolutely so we are we are actively working to make the mobile watching experience better i mean i literally was working on this today it's a thing that's we're talking about all the time um so we hear it we understand a standalone app for watching is probably not in the cards just based on how many resources have to go into it. And then you have to build it in iOS and then you have to build it in Android, but you're also building the website. So we are going to lean in on mobile web for now um, to do that. But you can also access that mobile web through your through your you know app on your phone. But I understand it's not quite what a lot of people would like, but we are very focused on making it better and better. Um, and especially for mobile. I mean, a lot of people want to watch, you know, their main screen on their laptop has got the broadcast and then you want to watch, you know, follow along maybe the event like I do on my phone. Yeah, I was shocked when you told Levitov that two thirds of uh, your your user base is primarily mobile. I, you know, again, not being like median chess fan, that, that surprised yeah. me. Yeah. I do notice I see more, you know, just on public, out in public on the bus at the coffee shop, Lots of chess.com sightings over the shoulder. It feels like, you know, a lot more than there used to be. Yeah, absolutely. We'll be back with more from chess.com CEO, Eric Olibest. And we are back. And Eric, I'm curious about, so obviously these are business decisions, as you mentioned. Um, You know, your company is somewhat famously bootstrapped. A lot of folklore associated with your buying the domain name. I mean, it's an amazing story. Um, and obviously you, you and the team were the primary owners and then, uh, you took, you took capital in 2022 from General Atlantic. Um, and then later that year purchased, uh, Play Magnus. So I'm, again, you may or may not want to answer this, but were, were those events related? They actually weren't related. We, the, we, the, you know, Play Magnus group was not on the radar at the time, um, when we did the deal with, uh, General Atlantic. And frankly, we didn't want to do the deal with General Atlantic, like, but, uh, oh man, now you got me talking here. We had one very small investor. We we said we don't want any. First of all, we said we want investors, and everyone said chess is not something that anyone should ever invest in. So we no one wanted to invest in chess. So we're like, fine, we'll go do it on our own. So we went and did it. And then everyone wanted to invest once it was successful. And we're like, no. And then finally, we let one person in because this person was like, hey, I really love chess. This and was the Isai, right? Nope. This is before. One person oh, before. okay. 
He's like, hey, I just want to invest. I love chess. I'll be here forever. We're like, great, you're in. Okay, fine. And later he's like, hey, I need to sell. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> you said you were in. Like, what is the deal here? And he's like, yeah, but I found this guy, Esau, you know, the Scheinberg family. They love chess. Like, they want in. And we're like, oh, man. Like, and so he, he kind of said, like, either – Either you find you, we agree on someone, or I'm just going to sell my shares because I'm allowed to to someone you don't know. And I'm like, well, I definitely want to have a, a say in that process. And so we brought up the Scheinberg family, ended up investing, and they bought a little bit more than you know. You start with a small number, and they want a little more than that. So you're okay, fine. And then they're in, and then we're like, oh, well, they love chess. They, you know, they'll be here forever with us. And then three years later, hey, we got to get up. What you we. <laughs> And then, you know, so then it was the same story. Either they're going to sell to someone we don't know and we don't like, or we get to kind of find someone we, you know, that we like. And so then we took, then we ended up doing a deal with General Atlantic. And again, they want just a little more than the other person had. And everyone's a little bit like, I'll take a little bit of money off the table because we work our asses off and, you know, helps to have a little bit of financial stability. So now we're partnered with General Atlantic and, you know, I will say, Surprisingly, I really like them. Surprisingly, like they're good people. Surprisingly, like we have, even though we come from two sides of the mountain, we really meet well in the middle and see and, and end up seeing things the same way. And so I'm, I've, so far, I've had a wonderful experience. Now, do I expect to in some number of years be surprised when they're like, hey, it's time to, you know, I'm, what, you know? And so it's going to be, it's probably going to be frustrating then. I will say my ultimate hope and dream though, if I'm honest, would be to have chess.com go public. I would love for the community to own the game and anyone who wants to be an investor, I would love for it to be self-determining in its future and it's, and all of that. I would love for the financials to be public and just do all that stuff. So that's my hope and dream is to one day, one day be public. That would be amazing. And yeah, you mentioned that with Levitov. Is the, do you have like a timeline like that you dream about or is it not that firm? My my hope is that chess.com is a forever company that just forever lives and serves the community. And my belief is that chess.com will be around in 100 years as long as it stays true to its core value and mission to serve the community, grow the game, and be the best place to work. I think we can be a 100 years company. If we fumble on any of those things and some you know future CEO when I'm dead is you know some jackass tries to over monetize or steer the ship in the wrong way, the community will revolt. There's plenty of places for them to go, and Chess.com would die. Um, you know, so my hope is that it's around forever. You know, so there's no timeline on that. I'll say my personal timeline is you know I'll either quit tomorrow or in five years. I don't know. It just uh, depends on how I'm feeling in in the day. Uh, some days I feel like I can't do it anymore, and other days I feel like this is going to be you know something I'm going to love doing for the rest of my life. It just depends on. Um, you know, it depends on the temperature and how much stress I feel. So, it, I mean, obviously you've worked very hard for very long, um, but so it's realistic to think you might you might hang it up at some point, say within five years? For sure. Wow. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm old and I'm tired and I've been on the treadmill sprinting my heart out for 18 years. I mean, this is exhausting. Yeah. And sometimes you need to take a break. Um you know, and so that, that does, I would never leave chess entirely, probably sit on the board and be different things and guide and steer. And I'm definitely not interested in starting any other companies. I'm, I'm too old and too tired for that. I probably want to go do professional pickleball or disc golf or something that I love. Um, 
But, uh, you know, I don't know. My son's ready to play you in pickleball. Bring it. No chance. <laughs> I feel like we, uh, I, I want to study what those guys do for community engagement because they they absolutely blew up overnight, it feels like. they. I, I don't know what they're doing. So I do know um, we're close with people. Uh, no promises here, but there's there is a chess pickleball event in the works. Oh, um, chess, chess boxing to chess pickling. Okay. They, okay. Pickleball is such a an accessible game. That said, like they struggle in the same way that a lot of people play, but how many people actually watch yeah. is a struggle for them. And um, you know, I think we're going to see how that shake shakes out. Whether it's a little bit of uh, overhyped, like esports was, or whether it's a, the real deal. Um, but as a game to play, it's amazing. I'll say they're part of the reason, though, that pickleball can thrive as an industry more than chess. Is that with pickleball, you're buying shoes, paddles, balls, you're renting courts, you're paying money. You have a healthy financial ecosystem around the game, and there's money in the game. Chess has always struggled because there hasn't been money in the game. And part of the success of why it's grown, frankly, is because we brought money to the game. We built a service. We got subscribers. We turned around and invested that in content. It grew the team. It grew the, grew the community. It grew it. And more money begets more money. And that begets more growth and does all that. Frankly, it kind of bums me out sometimes when I still see attitudes that, you know, chess, there should be no money in chess or whatever. Like, I think that's not good for the growth of the game. Um, I think, you know, so it's just a hard game to monetize. It's totally free to play. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, you can, you can get a chess board. You can make one out of paper. You can buy one for, you know, five bucks on Amazon and you're set forever. You can play it on a free app and play it on many different free apps. There's no money in it. So when there's no money, sometimes there's no growth. So we're super grateful to the more than million people who subscribe on chess.com that allow us to have the revenue to turn around and hire 700 people, to turn around and spend $10 million on prizes and events and community and coaches and all the things that we do. That's a big reason why we're able to grow the game. So thank you to any premium subscribers out there. You're a big part of the growth. That's the the beauty of it, but also the challenge, right? Because, you know, anyone can play for free, but then... When anyone can play for free, it's hard to pursue it as a business. Yeah. Yeah. And I also think you hit on something. There's a lot of people who love playing, but but not necessarily fans of watching elite players play. That is true. Um, well, Eric, this has been amazing. Really appreciate how forthcoming you've been. Um, do you have anything, first of all, like what do you that you can say? What are you most most excited for in 2024 as as we wrap up? Or it could be 25. Oh, um, there's some very exciting product initiatives that we're working on that I'm excited about. Um, We want to make it easier for people to enjoy the game and make progress and get a little bit better. Um, So that's a big initiative we're doing. Um, You know, we're also investing a lot into the game review product, um, to help as part of that to, you know, uh, to, so people can understand the game. It's just a hard game. You know, you get in and you play and you're rated 500 and you barely know why you lost. And like, 
So just demystifying the game from a product point of view is, is big for us. Um, we're still seeking, you know, the right avenue to grow the chess uh, ecosystem commercially with the media and events. And, you know, we're having conversations regularly with big media partners, whether producers of a drive to survive for chess or whether, you know, someone who could help us put events together. So we're still working on that. Um, you know, our, our team is super motivated and excited about the future. Um, and, you know, just buckling down to, to, to deliver. Um, I would love it to be a less stressful year than last year, if I'm honest for me personally and for Danny and for many of the people at the company who have felt a tremendous amount of anxiety going through the growth and managing all the hiring and all the teams and the acquisition and all the different things. So my number one thing would just be to have a little bit calmer of a year um, and uh, may, may or may not get that. Well, I hope. Uh, Nate, do you have any uh, closing questions? Uh, no, that, that was great. Just a... Next time you see those Netflix guys, um, I've I've got a concept for a show. It's it's about aging FMs uh, chasing the IM title. I call it board flippers. It's uh, you know, most of it is just us losing to twelve year olds. But I think uh, I think it could be a big hit. You know, um, I know they're kind of joking, but maybe kind of not. Uh, the rise of the young generation that is is flipping the game on its head and making it you know, feel weird for a lot of the older players, um, I think is one of the most fascinating and amazing stories out there. And we've been pitched and seen many different pilots and storylines for people who are trying to get shows like that onto onto TV. So uh, I'm with you and I hope that happens. Excellent. All right. Well, Eric, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Um, and yeah, uh, thank, thanks for, yeah. as you said, you guys, you guys get great feedback. You get a lot of hate. You get everything in between. But um, from my perspective, there's, you know, people like me make a living in chess uh, in large part because of the work you guys have done. So uh, thank you. And uh, thanks for the great interview. I appreciate you having me. Podcast Network.